You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 87. I had to look it up. Um... Again, we are still on lockdown with coronavirus, so I am just making myself available for those of you listening on podcasts or watching on YouTube. Uh, we do this live every Wednesday at 1.30. Usually I have a topic to talk about. We kind of pick something and, and cover it, uh, but since coronavirus is going on right now and a lot of people can't get access to clinics, we've decided uh, simply to just do live Q&A sessions for patients, uh, healthcare professionals, whoever might have questions about concussion, which is originally how the show started anyway, was just doing kind of live Q&As. And so we're getting back to our roots, I guess you could say. Uh, so I don't have any questions to start us off yet. So whoever wants to be brave, I see people kind of trickling in now on both platforms. For those of you on YouTube or listening on the podcast, if you want to join us, you can follow at Complete Concussions or at Concussion underscore Doc, which is my handle, and uh, we do it live on Instagram. So, first question. I'm a new grad. I'm a new grad. What concussion training would you recommend? Well, of course, I would recommend Complete Concussion Management training. Um, it really depends on what you are hoping to do with it. Uh, if you wanted to go in an, into more of a research-based role, um, I'd probably recommend going into a master's or PhD type program. If you are looking to be more clinical, then, um, then you can look into some of the clinical courses out there. If you're a rehab professional, there's some re ones for rehab professionals. Um, again, I have a bias because I am the founder of Complete Concussion Management um, and you know we pour everything we have into that course and so um, I would strongly recommend that one, um, but again, that's my bias. We have probably more than 2,000 references, uh, scientific references in that, in that course. Um, it's 40 hours long. Uh, it's covered for 32 or 34 CEUs um, for PTs across the United States. Uh, we're also working right now on getting CE credits for chiropractors across the states. We have it all in Canada already. Um, but yeah, the course is heavily referenced, designed to be evidence-based, and designed to be um, very sequential. I know that a lot of courses out there will cover a, a topic over here, a topic over there. A lot of people will might go to a weekend seminar and um, you, know, you might have various speakers and various experts speaking on various different topics. What we wanted our course to be was to start kind of with the background information and then build on that information so that it's all sequential, it's all practical, and it's all evidence-based. And so um, I can't speak to any of the other courses because I'm not involved with those ones, but I can tell you how much work and effort goes into the CCMI course. Um, so if you are looking to have an all-encompassing course and go from having little to no knowledge to being um, to having a full breadth of knowledge and feeling very confident with concussion patients, um, that's what the CCMI course is designed to do. 
So I hope that one helps you. What's the best way to help with concussion symptoms and cervicogenic headaches and neck issues that you'd normally see a Cairo for? Unfortunately, a lot of what you would need in terms of neck work uh, requires some hands-on and manual work that normally a chiro would do or a massage therapist or some PTs would do as well. But um, there are still things you can do. Most of it is things like exercise, stretches, um, stability exercises and proprioceptive exercises depending on what your symptoms are. If your symptoms are mostly headache based, usually that requires some soft tissue release or tension release. You can have you can do this with rehabilitative exercises, but it does take longer. Um, but the good news is once you get it there, typically the, the results may be longer lasting. Um, so it depends on what your issue is. I don't wanna give you any recommendations without knowing what your specific issue is. It's not like there's just general recommendations, but um, I would look for um, stability exercises, typically um, isometric based exercises, uh, working on the deep neck flexors which are here in the front, usually things like chin tucks or, or um, driving your head back into, into the wall or into a ball or onto the floor and then lifting your head up slightly. That's usually how you work the deep neck flexors. You can do lateral isometric stuff where you're either pushing against resistance um, either self-resistance or you can get you know an exercise ball put it on the wall and push into it laterally like that you can also do it lying on your side and lifting your head up slightly and just working on the side of your neck um, you can do it from a prone position to work the muscles in the back of your neck you can get uh, little lacrosse balls or tennis balls or acupressure balls and put them up in the suboccipital area and push your head back into them to create kind of some of that soft tissue release um, it really depends on what the issue is uh, and without knowing that I don't necessarily want to just tell you to do everything but um, if you have a healthcare provider you're working with right now a lot of them are doing virtual so I recommend maybe booking in with them and having them give you specific exercises for what you need. Your talks and podcasts have helped tremendously. Thank you Keisha. Uh, I'm finally starting to feel better two months post two concussion injuries. Can I go back to hardcore workouts or should I continue to ease back into things? Uh, it depends on what you're doing right now. Like if you're um, typically on an exercise protocol, what we tell people to do, usually what we do is we test them first. So we put them on the treadmill and we have them ramp up their heart rate to try and see at what point they become symptomatic or what time, at what point their symptoms get worse. Typically what you're looking for is an increase in your starting point symptoms. So let's say if you took all of your symptoms together and said, how do I feel overall from zero to 10? 10 being you know, the worst you could ever possibly imagine, zero being that you have no symptoms whatsoever, you feel great. That's your starting point. So if I'm just sitting here right now and I say, okay, my symptoms overall are a three out of 10. What we do when we put you on the treadmill is we're looking for an increase, a substantial increase in your symptoms, not just, oh, I feel a little twinge here or I'm starting to get a little bit of a headache here. I wanna see your overall symptoms, all of your symptoms combined, you need to have a three or more point increase in those symptoms from your pre-test score. So if I ask you before you get on the treadmill, how do you feel today overall? 
10 being the worst, zero being 100% back to normal. Where do you say you're at? They say, you know, three or four, put them on the treadmill and then they start going. And then I say, okay, how are you feeling now? They say, oh, I'm at a four. Okay, great. So that's a one point increase. Not enough to stop my test yet. We keep going. So I want to see a substantial increase. So three or more points. And then once I know where they're at, like, so if they have that increase, then I take a look at their heart rate. Um, how high was your heart rate at that point? And then we say, that's your threshold. So then we take that heart rate, whatever heart rate they were able to achieve, but when their symptoms spiked and we, 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 um, we subtract, you know, 20 or 30% or sorry, 10 to 20% off that. So we want them exercising at 80 to 90% of their threshold. So your threshold is when you had that increase in symptoms. So I take 80 to 90% of that and I have you start exercising every single day for 20 to 30 minutes at that 80 to 90% heart rate threshold. And you're doing steady state exercise. I don't want you going up and down and up and down and up and down because if your threshold is here and you spike above it, you're just gonna make yourself symptomatic. So sometimes people will say, well, can I go back to weight training and things like that? It depends on where you're at. If I put you on the treadmill and you get your heart rate up to full maximal exertion and you don't have any increase in symptoms, that means that you don't have a blood flow issue. You don't have an autonomic nervous system issue. So what I would tell you to do is start with steady state exercise as hard as you want. There's no threshold, there's no risk, uh, and then get back into weights when you feel you wanna give it a try. But if you have a threshold, if you have that threshold, if you fail that test and you have a certain threshold that once you get your heart rate above that, you become symptomatic, I'm not going to tell you to go back to weights because what's happening is you're going to spike above that threshold and create problems for yourself. So your question was, I'm finally starting to feel better two months post two concussion injuries. Can I go back to hardcore workouts or should I continue to ease back into things? It depends on where you're at now. Are you exercising right now? If not, I would start with steady state cardio and I would just gradually, I would get a heart rate monitor. You can buy them on Amazon um, or anywhere else. I think most places are probably closed though. So Amazon's your best bet. Heart rate monitor on, go for a walk. Figure out what your heart rate is. Monitor how you feel during your walk. It's mostly during. Don't worry about after, mostly during. Okay, if you feel good at a heart rate of 100 beats while you're on your walk, you know, tomorrow bump it up to 105. See how you do and keep doing that until you find if you have a threshold or not. Once you can get your heart rate up to, let's say you can jog, you know, you can get your heart rate up to 150, 160 beats per minute jogging, right? And all this is age dependent. So depending on your age, that's where your threshold heart rate should be or your max heart rate should be. Uh, if you're able to get yourself up to a jog and you feel fine, well, now you can start looking at pushing yourself, going back into hardcore, trying sets of things. Because what happens when you do sets of things is your heart rate spikes and then it comes back down when you're resting and then it spikes. That's generally harder for your physiology to, to work with, right? Because it's constantly fluctuating. So if you have an impairment in those mechanisms, now it has to, you know, it has to alter itself repeatedly, which is more difficult of a task for it to do. So what you can do is just do steady state cardio to get your physiology used to having a high heart rate, having good blood flow. Then you can worry about changing the fluctuations with it by doing sets of things and going back into hardcore workouts. So I guess I just need to know more information about where you're at. If you're not exercising at all, start slow and build, but always steady state. If you're already at your max steady state, then you can start doing fluctuations. My son had numerous concussions from football. He hit his head on a car, hit his head on a car. 
It's a strange mechanism. Over a year ago, and then again in December, has had 40 dives of hyperbaric oxygen. His ears are sensitive and dizzy. What can he do now? Um, well, we got to find out why he's dizzy. Um, if you mean, so ears are sensitive. I'm guessing what you mean by that is that he has sensitivity to noise. Um, generally sensitivity to noise, we don't really have any good treatments for it other than kind of gradually exposing yourself to increasing noise. Uh, a lot of times when people have noise sensitivity, they're told to wear earphones and earplugs and things like that. But really all that does is make your nervous system more sensitive to noise. So I would say the best thing you can do is just ditch the earplugs and try to expose yourself to normal levels of noise. Um, and over time, gradually you'll become kind of desensitized to it. In terms of the dizziness, it really depends on why he's feeling dizzy. Generally, it could be because you're, you have an issue with your eyes and how your eyes move can make you feel dizzy or off. It can be a problem with your inner ears or your vestibular system, uh, which has fluid in it that tells your body where you are in space and reacts to changes in motion. Or it could be issues with your neck. The muscles and joints of your neck tell you a lot about where you are in space. And so if you have tightness or tension in certain muscles and joints of your neck, it'll tell your brain different information about where you are in space and that can make you feel disconnected. Oftentimes dizziness is an input problem. People look at concussion and think, well, this is a brain problem. This is a central nervous system problem. But when you look at things like dizziness, generally it's an input problem. So you're getting information from three different systems. You're getting information from your eyes, from your inner ears, and from the muscles and joints of your neck. If one of those systems is giving you incorrect information, you're gonna feel disconnected and dizzy. So you just have to find out which one of those systems it is and work to fix that system. All of this is treatable with rehab. Um, and so it really depends on why he's feeling dizzy. I'll just say this again, because I say this every single time, hyperbaric oxygen uh, does not work for post-concussion symptoms. All of the evidence that's been done on hyperbaric oxygen so far, any of the good quality trials that have been done have shown that it is no better than placebo or sham, meaning that you would get just as much benefit if you just went inside the tube and they didn't even turn it on. So um, I will say that there, there's a lot of places out there that are marketing hyperbaric oxygen as being an effective treatment strategy for concussion. However, the evidence, the scientific research does not actually support it shows that it's no better than sham. So my advice to you would be if his sensitivity is due to noise, get rid of the earplugs, get rid of the headphones, and just try to have normal noise levels going on so that gradually he gets used to the normal noise levels. And in terms of dizziness, you just gotta figure out what it is. So find a good rehab professional, medical professional, somebody who understands concussion and can assess and find out is this an, an ocular motor problem, meaning an eye motion problem, uh, an inner ear problem or a vestibular problem, or is it a neck problem? So that would be my recommendation to you. This is just a follow-up question to the same person before. She says she's been so many places and no one knows. That's unfortunately the problem with concussion is that you have a lot. <laughs> it's something that is so prevalent. The injury is so prevalent, and yet it's not covered in medical schools. It's not widely covered in PT programs. Uh, so most healthcare professionals out there in the field right now have not received any type of really good quality 
education when it comes to concussion. They might know the basics, um, but it's either like super outdated um, or it's, it's not accurate, um, which is exactly why Complete Concussion Management started in the first place was to try and drive um, continuing education programs for healthcare professionals that are in the field and also kind of up the level and up the game of people that are new grads coming out of school because we know that they're not receiving an adequate education. So you're definitely not alone. You've been so many places. I mean, our goal, our mission right now is working on trying to get as many people trained as possible so that you can find a place to go. You can easily just go on and find completeconcussions.com and find a clinic that's in your area. No one should have to struggle to be able to find decent quality care. Um, I will say this, we are still working on a patient course right now to provide people that can't get access to care, especially right now during this time uh, when clinics are closed. We're making a patient course to provide you with tools and education, like what types of exercises, how can you kind of assess yourself, um, how to you know improve your sleep, how to improve noise sensitivity, light sensitivity, all those things that, things that you can do at home uh, we're building a course on that, so uh, anyone who's interested in that, email info at completeconcussions.com and just put in the subject heading patient course and we'll just put you on a list, uh, a wait list. We probably have like 50 people on there right now already uh, on the wait list for it. So I'm hoping to be able to get it out within the next couple weeks to start to start it because I know people are struggling um, right now at home. So if, if that's something that might be able to help you, then... Uh, just Heather, just send an email to info at complete concussions um, and put in the subject title, uh, patient course. I scraped my head while swimming in the ocean. I got it checked by my doc two weeks later, said I was fine. It's been a month later and I still feel somewhat off. What are some good ways to know I'm not overthinking symptoms? Okay, um, great question. So first of all, you have to consider the amount of force. Sorry here, Heather, uh, info, like info, I-N-F-O, at completeconcussions, with an S, dot com. Okay, back over to Nick. Scraped his head on the ocean, got it checked up by his doctor, said he was fine, it's been a month, still feeling somewhat off, wants to know how he can figure out if he's not just overthinking his symptoms. And the where I started with was you have to consider how much force is required to cause concussion injury. Concussion is the result of the brain, which is in a, in a fluid, right? So the brain is kind of floating in a fluid around it. So that fluid cushions it. So in order for the concussion to happen, the, the cells of the brain have to get stretched to a significant degree to cause stimulation and kind of a neuron discharge. If you look at football, okay, football is where most of the research has been done on this. Less than, um, uh, less than 1% of all the hits that happen in football cause concussion injury. The amount of G-forces needed, because concussion, in order to have that stretch, it, you need acceleration or deceleration which is just negative acceleration. You need acceleration and deceleration, which is gonna cause the brain cells to stretch. And in football, you only hit that level of acceleration less than 1% of all the hits that happen. 
So you're talking about a substantial amount of force. You need 70 to 120 G's of acceleration to hit that threshold for concussion. Um, there's obviously some give or take in there and with kids it's it's lower than it is for adults but just if we just stick with that just kind of wrap our heads around that you need 70 to 120 G's of acceleration to cause concussion injury if you look at uh, research looking at car accidents if you're in a in a car accident your airbags are set to deploy at a change of velocity of 50 kilometers an hour and if you're in the United States that's 30 miles an hour so if you're driving down the street going 30 and you hit a telephone pole or a parked car or something like that and you have a change of velocity very quickly of 30 miles an hour to zero your airbags are going to deploy that translates into 60 G's through the seatbelt right remember what I said for concussion you need 70 to 120 G's so you're talking about a tremendous amount of force to your head to cause a concussion injury so you're swimming along in the ocean and you scrape your head on the bottom of the ocean. Do you think that that force was the equivalent of a car accident in which your airbags were deployed? Probably not. So I would, I would say that it's likely that uh, you didn't have a concussion just based on the amount of force that would be there. Now, I've also had patients that have been surfing uh, bodyboarding or whatever and getting thrown up by a wave and slammed into the bottom of the ocean and have had them suffer concussions but I just if you're just kind of scraping your head or a little bump like this like this does not cause concussion injuries because there's not enough acceleration delivered to the brain to actually cause the brain to stretch and undergo the the pathophysiology of concussion injury it's just not possible so concussion injuries happen at high force they don't happen at low force um, so that would be something to hopefully ease your mind in that now the fact that you're having symptoms doesn't mean that you couldn't have done something else like jamming up your neck so having a whiplash or any type of neck injury or dysfunction is the symptoms are the exact same as they are for concussion you can feel dizzy nauseous headaches concentration difficulties, visual discrepancies, all sorts of things can happen if your neck is dysfunctional. The amount of force required to cause neck injury or neck dysfunction is only four and a half G's. So if you have a mild hit and start feeling symptoms, it's unlikely to be concussion because it's not enough force to make the brain do what it needs to do to cause the concussion injury. But because the symptoms are the same, I would start looking at either A, you are overthinking it and it's more anxiety than anything because you can you can cause yourself to feel any number of symptoms just by getting anxious enough about it or looking too closely at things it trips you up or it could be a neck injury that you have where your neck gets a little tight it starts causing headaches things like that um, so I would look I would think mostly at that if it was a major hit then you can start thinking maybe it was concussion if it was a minor hit probably not concussion Either you have some neck issues that happen at the same time, or it's just an, it's an anxiety thing that's starting to present like concussion because the symptoms are the same. They look very similar to that. Hope that helps. Dizziness usually from blood flow issues, vestibular, ocular. Uh, there's no way to know. The only way to know is to test it. So the question is, is dizziness usually from blood flow issues or vestibular or ocular issues? 
And the answer is we don't know. We have to um, we have to test it. So usually it's okay. Put you on the treadmill. Oh, you passed. Okay, not a blood flow issue. Let's do vestibular. Oh, not a vestibular issue. Oh, visual. There it is. It's a vestibular issue, or it's a neck. It could be neck too. You forgot neck in there, but um, yeah. What could be causing a patient one year out to be dizzy on a stationary bike? No dizziness with increase in heart rate though. Um, well, you're not moving, so it's not gonna be your visual system, your vestibular system. Uh, if you're not experiencing dizziness with increased heart rate, it's unlikely to be the blood flow issue. Um, so then you're basically left with it's uh, psychogenic, meaning that it's uh, related to more kind of psychological side of things, uh, or it could have something to do with just your position on the bike and having some neck tension. Um, a lot of times, because the other cause of dizziness, right, you got visual, vestibular, neck, and then you have blood flow or even psychogenic. Um, so, but if you're in a position on a bike where your neck is kind of jammed up, because sometimes you're forward on the bars, your neck gets jammed up here, sometimes tension in the muscles of the neck can make you feel dizzy, makes your eyes feel a little bit off because all these systems are coordinating together. Uh, and so if you're riding the bike and you're starting to feel dizzy, it could be just the position of your neck. So I would try changing positions on the bike, maybe trying to be more upright, um, see if that does anything. Um, yeah. Thanks, Siobhan. I'm getting text messages. <laughs> Siobhan is from Concussion Lab. If anyone knows Concussion Lab, they have awesome rehab products. And actually, Complete Concussion Management just partnered with Concussion Lab so that all of our clinics could get hooked up with their awesome rehab products. So check out Concussion Lab. They have laser headlamps and Brock strings and uh, all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, there she is, Concussion Lab. Uh, Keisha, when will your patient-based workshop be available? I'm working on it. I'm going as fast as I can. Uh, I got. I have a bunch of other people coordinating as well. I have Dr. Paul Herkel working on a nutritional piece as well as hormones and sleep. Uh, and I have a psychotherapist um, who's working on kind of the mental health aspect, um, um, recovery mindset, mindfulness-based meditation. She's also going to help a little bit with the sleep side. Um, yeah, Siobhan says, thanks, Cam. Visit us at concussionlab.com. Check them out. Patient of mine is a 16-year-old downhill mountain biker with three concussions in the last four years. Most recent was three months ago. He is now symptom-free. Awesome. One neuro says you're done. Other says be careful. Well, there is, hmm, okay. <laughs> uh, so that's a great question because it's always, it's one of those things where we don't really know you know, what the long-term ramifications of concussion might be. There's obviously a lot of speculation that having a lot of concussions is leading to long-term neurodegenerative issues. The problem is that research is still very early stage and we don't, we don't know all the pieces of the puzzle yet. Um, having, having three concussions in four years um, may be an issue, but it also may not be. 
Um, so I think really what it comes down to is just having the conversation with the athlete as well as their parents, especially when they're a 16 year old. And we do this all the time. We say, look, you've had three concussions in the past four years that may mean nothing. Um, there may not be any long-term effects of that whatsoever, or it could, um, it could mean that things are, you know, potentially on the downslope or they could deteriorate if you were to get another one or another couple of concussions. So it's really just having the conversation, weighing the pros and cons with the family and just seeing what they do. It's, it's a joint decision. I'm never going to pull somebody out completely unless I know that they're a full on, like they're in a dangerous state. And what I typically will use as a way to um, initiate that conversation or something that's going to provoke me to have that conversation is you look at a couple things. Number one, are they getting concussed easier and easier and easier each time, right? So this guy had, is it a guy or girl? I uh, don't know. Anyway, this person had three concussions in four years. Each time they get a concussion, is it happening with less force? If it starts happening with less force, that becomes a little bit concerning because it may indicate that there's some vulnerability there where they're getting concussed easier and easier and easier. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing is, is it taking them longer and longer and longer to recover each time? If they get concussed and they've had three concussions in the past four years, but each time they, they've gotten concussed, the force is still a significant amount of force. It's not getting less and less. And they recover within you know a couple weeks and it's not getting prolonged, then I would, I would be a little bit um, less... Uh, cautious or less concerned about that particular case. But if I have that same 16 year old, that's like the first time I got concussion, I fell off my bike. The second time I had like a mild little, you know, bump and now I had a concussion and now it took me three months to recover. I'm going to be more concerned about that case than I will about the the previous uh, example that I gave. So what I would say again is Whenever you're thinking about having these discussions or things, the things to keep in mind are, are you getting concussed easier and easier and easier each time? And is the recovery becoming longer and longer and longer each time? If so, it's probably time to look at a different sport or switching to non-contact type activities. If not, well, we still don't know what the long-term effects could be of that, but you have to weigh the pros and cons. If this is something you really, really love to do and you're willing to take the risk and your family is okay with that, then okay. Um, if not, some people might just make the decision that, you know what, I'm not really that into mountain biking anymore anyway. I think I'll probably just call it call it a day. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of a joint decision that goes into that, um, not necessarily just a you know, yes or no type of decision. So there's some things that have to be weighed uh, in that. Let's go back over here, see if I got anything coming on. Do, do, do. <laughs> Taking a break from module eight to come and hang out. <laughs> I hope you're not getting too sick of me yet. So this person is obviously in our, uh, our practitioner course that are on module eight. Um, wait till you get to module 10, that's the fun one. Um, but yeah, they're probably getting sick of my voice now because I teach uh, majority of that of that course. Uh, I am a PT, but not working. Have had multiple concussions due to equestrian accidents, and have had seizures related to them that happen when I become too dizzy. How common is this? Um, concussion can sometimes be the inciting incident to a seizure 
disorder. Um, I wouldn't say that it's extremely common. Um, I don't know exactly how common it is. I think it's, um, I'm trying to remember the stats. I don't have the exact stats off the top of my head, but I think it would be, it would be less than 5%, probably closer to, you know, two, one or 2% of, of concussion patients would do that probably even less actually, but I don't know the exact number on how common it is. Um, but if you're having seizures, I would definitely be, um, trying to find a neurologist, uh, to figure out, you know, why that is. And then maybe if there's any type of, you know, medication that you can take prophylactically to, uh, to help with that, or if any, there's, there's anything else you can do that's kind of out of my realm. Can misalignment cause post-concussion syndrome? Misalignment. What do we mean by doing spinal misalignment? C1. Okay, here we go. Um, so misalignment is kind of a, what's the term you want to use here? Let's call it a bullshit term. <laughs> I'm going to go out there and just say it. There's no, there's no misalignment. Nobody's misaligned. Uh, it's it's like old school Cairo thinking of like oh this is shifted this way or this is shifted that way. Um, really, the thought on it is that there's restrictions in joints that aren't moving properly, which can make something feel you know misaligned. Sometimes um, you know some of these upper cervical Cairos will take x-rays and they'll you know oh this is shifted this and that and over thing and basically a lot of that stuff has been disproven where you can't actually uh take those types of measurements because it really depends on how the patient is standing like if if i'm if you think about somebody who's setting you up for an x-ray right like if i'm a patient here and the chiropractor comes in they're positioning me however they want me so they come in they tilt my head here okay hold there hold there that's good and then they take the image and then they're going to show you that image and be like, oh, see how you're tilted right there? You know, that's because of this. But you can do anything to that. Like same thing with flattening of the spine. Well, if they put you in a lateral cervical spine radiograph and they tuck your chin way back like this, they're gonna push you into a very vertical position. Then they're gonna take an X-ray and be like, see how straight, you know, your spine is? You're supposed to have more of a curve like this. But they're the ones positioning you. So you can do all sorts of things and it really matters how you're positioned and you can find these little subtle uh, measurement differences and stuff. So when it comes to misalignment, um, I would, I would very, um, I would caution you on believing that you're actually misaligned. Your spine is not misaligned. You can have tension and tightness in certain things and joints that are not moving when others are. And it, and it can, it can, feel misaligned or it feels like you're tilted, but you're not actually, you know, misaligned. Your spine is not out of joint. Um, but that's often just what chiropractors might say because it's easier to understand for patients. You just say, oh yeah, you got a misalignment or this is shifted this way or something like that. It just makes it easier, I think, just to comprehend for patients. But in actuality, nothing is misaligned. Now, in saying that, if there is dysfunction, meaning like let's say you have some muscles that are tight or let's say you have a joint up here that isn't moving properly, muscles will tighten up around a joint to kind of protect it. You know, if it's inflamed and it's not moving properly, the muscles will tighten up there to just protect that area, which then starts to cause, you know, those issues of dizziness and visual disturbances and headaches and stuff. So upper cervical spine dysfunction can cause concussion symptoms. Um, I just don't like the term misalignment just because I don't think it's factually correct. Uh, what to do when light sensitivity is the main symptom a year out after injury? 
Light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, these ones are tough. Um, we don't really know what the true causes are. There's some speculation that it's overactivity of the nervous system. There's some speculation that it's hyperactivity of the thalamus, which is your sensory integration centers. Um, we don't yet know what it is, the, and we don't really know how to treat it. Typically what people do is they tell their patients to wear sunglasses. What we're starting to realize now is that when people avoid light, like if we put you in a dark room, if we tell you to wear sunglasses or any of this other stuff, we actually make your condition worse, right? If you think about it, if you've ever, you know, been downstairs in your basement on a bright sunny day and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to watch a movie this afternoon. And then you go upstairs and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is bright and you're going to feel like somebody just threw sand in your eyes because it's so bright. But does that mean you, that you have a problem with your brain? No, it means that your light, your, your eyes have adjusted to a lower level of light. And then when you expose them to a higher level of light, everything seems too bright. So if you put this in the context now of a concussion patient, we tell, we used to tell patients incorrectly to sit in darkness, right? Don't expose yourself to any light whatsoever. Just try to stay in a dark room for as long as possible until your symptoms go away. Secondly, if you're going out or even inside the house, wear sunglasses to you know, shield your eyes from light. Well, what's that gonna do over time? That's gonna make it so that your eyes become more sensitive to light. So that if you're exposed ever to normal ambient light, all of a sudden it seems too bright for you because you've been shielding yourself for so long. So the, the treatment now for this stuff, um, it depends on who you talk to, but Typically, I try right away to get my patients to ditch the sunglasses, right? Start just expose, you don't, don't sit in front of a bright light and you know, try to take in as much as you can, but just don't wear sunglasses inside the house. If it's a bright sunny day, sure, I wear sunglasses outside, of course, you wanna protect your eyes from that, but don't wear sunglasses unnecessarily. Try not to keep all the lights off when you're at home. Try to just get used to normal ambient lighting uh, and normal fluorescent lighting even in, in rooms and stuff. If that doesn't work, sometimes there's certain wavelengths of light that affect people more than others. And there's certain glasses you can get that will block certain, certain wavelengths of light that can often make patients feel a lot better. So my first line of defense is always dish the sunglasses and start exposing yourself to light. If it's still not tolerable after a while, then I go, okay, I'm gonna send you to our optometrist and try to find out what wavelength of light is really the bothersome one for you and see if we can give you some eyewear to, to just block that one. So you're not blocking everything, but you're just blocking that one wavelength and then try to gradually wean yourself off of that to try and get back to it. Uh, what should a PT do if a patient's ANS refuses to adapt and improve with some symptom exercise after several months of following the protocol? Um, so if the, if the patient is actually being um, diligent and compliant with it, I've never had anyone unable to increase their threshold as long as they're actually being diligent and compliant with the program. I have had a couple patients that ended up having something called POTS. And I don't know if you've checked your patients for POTS, but basically this is um, orthostatic tachycardia. So when patients go from either a sitting or, or lying position, they stand up, they have an autonomic nervous system dysregulation, which causes their heart rate to just skyrocket. And they're not very tolerant to exercise. 
And so what you have to do with those patients, um, if you can confirm that it's POTS, which is usually done with a tilt table test, uh, you can also do what's called an active standing test as a bit of a screen. There's, there's a couple you know, early stage studies on that showing that it's a decent screening tool. Um, then you would have them start exercising in a recumbent or supine position first. So usually starting with something like a row machine or a recumbent bike so that they're not upright um, and gradually increase their, their um, tolerance that way. Um, but like I said, if I've ever, if I've ever had a, compli a compliant patient, I've never had them be able, not be able to get their heart rate up. And usually it's, I only ever have to test people two or three times and every time I test them, they should be getting higher and higher and higher if they're actually exercising every single day and doing what they're told to do. Um, the only time I have patients that don't are when they are, um, whoops, when they're not being compliant. Do, do, do. Is this live lecture pre-recorded? No, it's not pre-recorded. I'm here. All right. Sorry, guys, if I couldn't get your question. Um, I'll be here next week, though. So be sure to come back. Uh, everybody stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, stay inside. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.